0: All right, good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Uh, Tonight is November 29th, 2022. Thank you all for coming. Our class tonight is going to be on the International Workers' Order, uh, which was started in 1930 and went until 1954. What we're going to be learning tonight is about the history of the International Workers' Order and and all of the different sections of it and the lifetime of it and what it did. Uh, its relation to the communist movement, and its downfall and the Jewish people's fraternal order and and, and what that was able to do in its lifetime. So the first part, our first section, is going to be on the origins of the International Workers' Order, where it came from, uh, how it split from the Workmen's Circle and uh, so forth. So we're gonna be looking at the Der Arbiter Ring, which is the Workmen's Circle, Uh, This was founded in 1900 by Eastern European immigrants, mostly Yiddish. Uh, When they came to the United States, uh, they didn't exactly uh, have a whole lot of organizations to help them out. So they went ahead and started this one. Uh, It was a social Democrat organization. It was Jewish, uh, secular Jewish, that is. It was more culturally Jewish uh, rather than religious Jewish. And it was a mutual aid organization. But it's important to understand that this mutual aid in, in this time is much more different uh, than the contemporary anarchistic mutual aid that we hear about today. Uh, the Workmen's circle was dominated by members of the Socialist Party of America. Uh, and the Socialist Party of America at that time, it had a different position than the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, the Socialist Party of America was more of the uh, Eugene V. Debs brand of socialists. Uh, They were anti-Soviet. They decried the Soviet judicial actions against the Socialist Revolutionary Party. Uh, And they also were affiliated with a Yiddish newspaper that was called The Forward. Over here, I went ahead and put in a picture that has uh, the Workman's Circle out at a demonstration on May Day. And it says the Workman's Circle School prepares a new generation to fight for the socialist cause. So the split in the workmen's circle. So these factional disputes that caused the split go back to 1922. In February of 1922, a new executive committee was made and the communists were prevented from getting on the credentials committee. Then in May of that year, they had the 22nd Conference of the Workers Circle. And two executive decisions were made that angered the left wing faction of the Workers Circle. One was against the Soviet Union for those judicial actions, against the uh, Socialist uh, Revolutionary Party. And one was against the Workers' Party USA and their Yiddish uh, newspaper, Morgan Freyheit. So a protest convention was held in June of 1922 uh, with that left-wing faction. And it was attended by uh, many different delegates from across the country. Uh, the National Executive Committee struck back against that and suppressed the left-wing faction, shutting down the Boston District Committee. Then on October 11, 1929, then this had gone back and forth with different factional disputes uh, throughout the uh, decades. On a, October 11, 1929, a National Conference of Minority Groups of the Workmen's Circle was held, and it was attended by 193 delegates from all around the country. Uh, Then the left-wing faction then made the decision in 1929 to leave the Workmen's circle and start their own working class formation. Then we have the establishment of the International Workers Order, which was formed in 1930. It was founded by open members of the Communist Party USA, Ruben Saltzman and William Weiner. Saltzman was the first general secretary of the International Workers' Order, and Weiner was the first president of the International Workers' Order. So you can kind of see what the leadership of that organization was like. Uh, prior to the International Workers' Order, in the 1920s, the Communist Party USA operated language federations, which uh, filled a similar purpose as the sections of the International Workers' Order. They were cultural uh, ethnic organizations that helped uh, to benefit those different groups that uh, usually were left out uh, by the different institutions in the United States. Uh, But those language federations faltered as the decade went on. When the IWO came into being, it basically took its place, albeit not being part of the party itself. They provided their members with low-cost life insurance. They published newsletters in different languages. And they held community events for the different ethnic and cultural groups. And these were uh, dance uh, events. These were different balls to be had. The, these were, um, there were different newspaper events that there was. They had a whole bunch of different community events to try to uh, uh, get people interested in it. And then the order grew from about 3,000 um, people to 5,000 members at its formation, to about 155,000 members by its peak in 1941. And I mean, that's that number is as much as a small city.
1: What is the nuance and the difference uh, in the left? Because you can be pro-worker, pro-communist, but like anti-Soviet. So I guess my question is, what specifically about Sovietism did other leftists not like uh, sorry if that's not too related, but I'm trying to like see why they didn't get along. Thank you.
2: The IWO was set up as a mutual assistance formation. Mutual assistance meant helping people not with jelly sandwiches like we do today in the left, putting up water and jelly sandwiches. That was nonsense. What we did is we set up, an insurance company, so every family could get health insurance, life insurance policies. Life insurance policies was the name of the thing. It gave us camps. It gave us camps for our summer, for the summer to send the children, and had camps for the adults because there was adults did not go vacation to hotels at that time. They went to camps throughout the country. That's what the mutual assistance program was. The question in the Soviet Union that was very clear. The big question which developed everybody, separated, was: did you support the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution run by Lenin and, and the Bolsheviks, or did you not? The second division. Did you support your country in war, world, one? Those were the two issues that divided the left. Okay, did I answer anybody's questions? So it was very clear if you were pro or anti-Soviet. Very clear.
0: Comrade from Vermont gave us a correction. Uh, The Socialist Party USA leadership and the now right-wing dominated rank and file had nothing in relation to the pro-Bolshevik and pro-revolutionary line that Eugene Debs held. Uh, Thank you for that correction, comrade.
3: First, to kind of respond to comrade's question about what causes the division between the pro- and anti-Soviet left. Uh, It's essentially a matter of idealism. Uh, The USSR was socialism in action, and the people who are opposed to it they are ultimately against socialism because they think that it should live up to some ideal fantasy rather than something that addresses the real contradictions that a society faces. Um, And you can see that today in the way that a lot of uh, so-called communists will criticize socialist states um, and They'll essentially use what can occasionally be valid criticisms as a way to discredit the entire system, uh, which shows a total lack of faith in socialism itself. They think that one misstep is enough to give up entirely. Uh, and I also have a question. Um, it said that the IWO was set up by uh, members of the Communist Party leadership. So was it a mass
2: organization? Yes, it was a mass organization. I'll give you example. The party had about 50,000 members at the period when this happened, and 50,000 members. IWO had up to 200,000 members. So it was called, Gus Hall called it, the ripple effect. You throw a pebble into a lake, and there are ripples. Those ripples go beyond where where you threw the pebble. The ripple effect is really what who we influence. So we had 50,000 members, but we influenced 200,000 members initially. I don't know if that answered you. Okay. I just wanted to ask, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here. You had said that it ended in the 50s. I know that that's the McCarthy era, but was direct. there any successor? It directly to connected the, to that. Directly connected direct, to that. Okay. Was there a direct successor to the IWO or did that just die out entirely? That's my question. No, the whole thing died entirely. Oh, the issue of income tax. That's how the government got us over the issue of income tax. I don't know the specifics, but I do know that our membership. And again, remember this, comrades and friends. Fear. The fear people ran away from the party and anything that smelled of the party. People ran. Why was there such fear? Was anything going on in this country to call for such fear? No, the party was never outlawed. Did you all know that? The party was never outlawed. What happened is that the McCarthy period happened Five or or six years after the concentration camps opened in Europe. Now we knew for a fact what the reactionary capitalists could do. So there was fear that fascism was coming. In 1947, it started with Truman. So all the party people and party related people thought they were going to go to concentration camps. People burned their Marxist libraries in their yards. Could you imagine this? Burning them, burning their own books for fear that if they were caught with this, they would be sent to a concentration camp. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um,
4: Trying to turn my camera on for a minute. There we are. Um, I did some research in the OOs that brought the IWO to my attention And from what I remember, I'm working from memory here, uh, in about 1954, the state of New York uh, basically charged the IWO with being a communist-influenced organization and seized its assets and forcibly parted out parts of the IWO, basically to private insurance companies. I saw records in the the Southern California Social Research Center. I don't know if that's still around. Uh, somebody had all their documents of some like private insurance companies sending them this letter saying, hi, we're your new provider. So basically the problem was that it was too successful. It was a financially successful, basically communist organization and the state seized it and privatized it uh, as I, part of the yeah. red scare thing. Now, like I said, I'm working from memory here. So please correct me where I might be wrong. Yeah,
2: you're correct. But you left out one part because they couldn't pay their income tax anymore because tens of thousands ran away. So the membership in IWL stopped and it was an organization that had to pay taxes. Because of that, the government seized their property, not because of any law. It was during the anti-communist period, but the reason they gave is they couldn't pay their income tax anymore. They also lost their daily newspaper called the Daily World the same year it happened, uh, maybe a year or two later, 1956, 1957, they put a chain, the government put a chain on the offices in New York of the, uh, so that you couldn't get into our offices. And therefore they closed us down because we couldn't pay our income tax. I hope that clarifies everything that does, but they did not liquidate the organization. They privatized it. No, no, that's, that is no, they didn't privatize it. Um, uh, what you said is correct. The insurance companies came in like, um, like vultures and they were able to, to get the list. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. The predecessors to this, Formation, the people, the Jefferson School for Social Research was on Sixth Avenue in Manhattan, a very important avenue. 90 it, was seconds. An eight, it, was, it was an eight-story building. First story was a cafeteria where people ate lunch. That building, the the owners, the party, had to sell it because we knew we were going to lose it. We didn't want to go away of the Daily World and the IWA. IWL. sorry. So they sold it to a group that they thought could carry on their work. And the group was labor, labor Zionist. That's who we sold it to.
5: It's interesting to note that during this time period um, that all of our mass organizations were under attack by McCarthyism. A lot of people, we lost a lot of people. I mean, the party was very strong in the 1930s in the 1940s, at least the first half of it. Um, but we bled thousands of people in terms of uh, membership. and the, But even still, comrades, the party always maintained a base of like 5,000 to 10,000 people. We always remain, there was always a strong base of party people that no matter how hard the FBI tried to harass and do all sorts of crazy things to that we're gonna stay loyal to the party. Um, the people that left, a lot of them um, during the 1930s and during the 1940s, particularly during the period of Browder, um, a lot of people felt comfortable joining the party. A lot of people from the middle class, from a kind of more of a um, professional kind of class, doctors, lawyers, music- musicians, artists, a lot of people joined the Communist Party under the understanding of it being, you know, an anti-fascist party, pro-Roosevelt, and um, and basically, and yeah, yeah. Um, And these people were of a different caliber than uh, comrades who were in the party since like the twenties and early thirties of the third period and the class against class period where we engaged in struggle with the social Democrats and with reformism. So that layer that joined the party during the popular front period, um, a lot of that, a lot of people from that era, um, we lost during the McCarthy period because the, because, you know, the repression was intense and it, was also the fact that a lot of these people weren't as militant and weren't as dedicated um, compared to a lot of our comrades who went underground during the McCarthy period, a good portion of the party went underground.
1: Well, first of all, I think it's the, the bot, the fact that we comrade general secretary Angela pointed out the fact that even then that, you know, broadly known that the party was not outlawed that should have been a number one, uh, you know rallying cry to actually take a stand not just run away but then of course there again we didn't have a lot of people that were militant enough willing to do that so it's another part of the problem so i'm just making some comments on what i'm hearing so yeah that's just like anything else that should have been like another thing that should have been used and really you know they would have had a chance But it would have had to been done over time and we didn't probably have the people willing to do all the hard work to do that. But that should have been one thing, number one, that provided had someone politically brilliant enough to use that and rally what we had. Otherwise, we may not have lost everything we had. Just saying, what do fascists only understand to back off its brute force? Thank you.
2: Could I respond to that, please? I want to get everything clear in everybody's mind. Up until 1944, there was was a disbelief that there could be such a thing as a concentration camp that it was an extermination camp of people who thought differently. They refused to believe that. This was something that was not proven. Can you understand this, everyone? 1945, the Red Army was the first ones to go into these extermination camps in Europe. Now the world saw visually what fascism did to its opponents. Now there was a whole different mindset. Now it was proven what fascism did. Before that, we did not know until after the war when we marched into the extermination camps and saw when we liberated them. That's very important. We thought fascism was coming to this country again. It ended in 45 in Europe. This is 47. That's two years later. It's fresh in everybody's mind what they had at the extermination camps. We thought that that was coming back again into this country. So all people that were involved with something that was forward-looking called the communist movement, pro-Soviet, began to run away to save their souls and their bodies. They've ran. Now, the party leadership officially, officially, decided that one section of the party would stay on the top, the other section of the party would go underground. The majority went underground. And this was a decision made at at, at the party leadership. This was not individuals. This was done from the top down. So even under that situation, we operated as a Bolshevik movement, democratic centralism. And that's what we did. So the Those that stayed on the top were people like Gus Hall, Henry Winston, and they were the ones who went to prison in 47, not the average person. Remember, the Rosenbergs joined the Communist Party during the Popular Front period. Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were a perfect example of the average person in the cities that joined the party. They came from something called New Deal liberals. New Deal liberals were pro Roosevelt.
6: Pro Roosevelt.
2: That's separate from the liberals that came out of the Hubert Humphrey period. Hubert Humphrey was in the early 60s. That um, that period, Ubert, um, the Hubert Humphrey liberals that were associated with Eisenhower, they were anti-communist. So there was a division in the liberal movement. Thank
7: you. Uh thank you. Two things. Um, First, I just kind of want to follow up with what Angela was saying. Um, just talking about the difference in liberals makes you at, makes you wonder um, if the liberals that came out uh, post Roosevelt, uh, in keeping with the traditions of liberal liberalism in the country, because it would seem that Roosevelt actually broke from a lot of the conventions of liberalism, given the time period. But the thing I wanted to say uh, about I keep hearing the word militant and some people will say, oh, these people weren't militant enough. And what does that mean when we say that we're militant? It, it conjures up uh, images of people in the streets with like uh, like a Black Panthers or something like that. Uh, but what does that mean for us in our movement to be militant or isn't even something we should be um, so preoccupied with? Thank you.
2: I'd like to answer that. At this time, militant was a popular word. Remember, in 1928, the Trotskyites were formed. They broke away from the communist movement. In this country, the Socialist Workers' Party was the Trotskyite Party. The name of their newspaper is called The Militant. It is still their newspaper. They still put out a paper called the militant. So the word militant has a meaning for people. Thank you.
0: So the second section is on the life of the international workers order.
2: Yeah. Let me go into this very carefully. It was, it came out of something called the language federations. That came across in the socialist party. That meant that among each ethnic group, Irish, Italian, Polish, Hungarian, those who spoke Yiddish, they were considered the Jewish, Yiddish speaking. All these different ethnic groups, the Finns, Finnish group was a very big one. Gus Hall came out of the Finnish ethnic group. That was his background. All these groups, were built along ethnics. What does that mean, ethics? This is important. They didn't come together over the issue of Workers of the World Unite. That's not what they came together on. Is that each ethnic group had a culture. It had a, a relationship to a diet, an ethnic religion. Each ethnic group was separate. Even the language, that's why it was called language federations, their language was different. But it was set up by the working class of that group. Like society, every group has 100%. 100%, 92% is in the working class. The rest are the capitalists of that ethnic group. So I wanted to explain that to you. Number one, very low cost life insurance. Why did we need that? We needed life insurance for obvious reasons. If something happened to you, your family would go out on the street. Now with life insurance, you were compensated to a certain extent. In the 1940s, the uh, IWO offered health insurance also. I mentioned that in the beginning of this class at very low cost. So what we had is the local IWO person would go to the neighborhood and go up the steps to each flight to each apartment. We used to call them flats, like in England, F-L-A-T-S. It was an apartment. Most of them were cold water, no heating, no hot water system. They didn't have hot water showers. And there was no elevators. These were immigrants, very poor. The IWR representative would walk in, sit down. They were giving coffee, tea, whatever, and everybody, Each family had their own book, a little book made out of cardboard that you held in the palm of your hands and you worked with stamps. You would give the IWL representative X amount, two cents, five cents a dollar for that month. And they would give you stamps to put in the book that shows that you were a member of it. There was no computers. We had a whole world without computers. The next thing, They operated medical and dental clinics, and I mentioned that to you. So you went to, we had our own doctors, our own dentists, our own lawyers. Remember, um, we had a legal defense fund. We had a group called the National Lawyers Guild, which still exists today, NLG. But it was started by the party. The radical left took it over in the 50s because the party wasn't around to defend any of our mass groups. So and the National Alliance Guild was taken over by the uh, radical left, independent left, anti-Soviet left formations. And they still control NLG, National Alliance Guild today. It was the only assurance at the time for people like workers, like coal miners, and it gave them the same benefits as other occupations. And coal miners were down at the list because of the black lung disease, was also the only insurance that gave African-Americans. Nobody catered to the African-Americans. They were shunned. IWO did not. Now, what you have to know is this, we also had sports teams. Sports teams, baseball, soccer was big um, because they came from Europe. And each, a lot of them were based on so we had something for our children we had sports for our children camps for our children in the summer there was no air condition comrades remember that those hot tenements were sweating bullets we had um no hotels to go to so the when they were adults went on vacation then we had our own camps in the mountains all over the country This is what the IWO, it was basically a system that didn't have to do with ideology per se, but helped the working class. Now, ideology came in when you looked at the positions that the workers IWO took. On every issue, it was the same as the party. Every single issue. For example, what was the big issue in the 1930s? what was the cause celebrate as we say it was the spanish civil war that was their version of vietnam like mine was the 60s was the vietnam war 60s and 70s to that generation it was the spanish civil war remember that so they gave money to spain they collected money they had musical events to collect money to send to spain Republican Spain. I hope I explained everything. So this insurance power programs was, was very important. We were the only ones doing it. As one of the comrades said, when we fell apart, we were forced to, because of income tax, the insurance companies, that's when they came in. So remember, they came in over our dead bodies. We as communists should have a special hatred, a special one for every insurance company. Thank you. As I mentioned, there were 15 sections, the Jewish people's fraternal order, which by the way, our party is bringing back. After 70, 80 years, we're bringing that back. That should be something that the people who belong to the party of socialism, USA, should be happy and proud about. We had a group in the Ukrainian, imagine if we had had that group today, they would be fighting the Ukrainian fascists. We had a group in Carpatho-Russian, that was the area around um, Czechoslovakia in that area. We had a a Greek group called the Hellenic American Brotherhood, Serbians, Russians. The Russian group was the one that built Arrow Park, that built the the, uh, American Russian Organization of Workers. Russian group that built Arrow Park where we have our first Congress and we're having our second Congress in 2024. That means something to us, Arrow Park. We had a Romanian group an Italian group called the Garibaldi Fraternal Society. Um, Hungarian group. Uh, today, young people don't know what this word fraternal means. It's amazing. We had one member said, I don't know what that word is. I don't use it. I won't belong to a fraternal organization. That was as common as black and white, that word fraternal. It simply means brotherly. In fact, it was so common that when I was in school in the early 50s, when we signed letters and we signed a letter to our friend, we use fraternally yours or sincerely yours or respectfully yours. That's where it comes. That's how common it was. We had a Spanish group, Cervantes, and I told you about the Finnish American and the Jewish people's fraternal order. We had our own magazine that came out every month. It was in English, and we also had what our newspaper, which came out every day, and it was in what not in English. It was in Yiddish, because all the Jews from the immigrant spoke Yiddish. Remember that. Hebrew was not a language of the Jewish masses. You should get that through everybody's head. It was Yiddish. Hebrew was only used by rabbinical sections in relation to religion, the Bible. Everyday work the conversation was done through Yiddish. And this was our English speaking publication called The Jewish, but there's the word, fraternal, The Jewish Fraternalist out by the Jewish section of the IWO. And I'll read you what it says here. It received the name of Jewish People's Fraternal Order in 1945. It was the most well-known and the most active, by the way, and the largest section. That's important. The largest section of the IWO was the Jewish section. What does that tell you? Think about that. Holding one-third of the membership, one ethnic group, Today, they still have a camp, but it's independent. It's called Camp Kindlin. Kindlin is a Yiddish word, which means children's land. Camp Kindlin was a notable Jewish summer camp in Massachusetts that was operated by the IWO. It was expelled, the Jewish fraternal people's order, by the Los Angeles Jewish community because of the McCarthy period. They were tagged with the communists. And they were expelled. Meanwhile, it was the communists who saved all the Jews in Europe. Remember, this you may not know, in 19, when the the trains came into eastern Poland and western Poland, when the trains came in um, with Soviet tanks, those trains did not go back to to Siberia, Russia, unless they filled them up with Jews. I don't know if you know any of this. I know I spoke to these people. I had the the luck of speaking to people who went through that when they were younger. So Polish Jews were saved by the Soviet Red Army. That's a fact. Um, Let's see, after McCarthyism, which meant McCarthyism ended in Staten Island, guess what, in 1962. That's where McCarthyism ended in Staten Island. The Jewish People's Fraternal Order changed to the Jewish cultural clubs and societies, which I had been a member of. I deliberately made myself a member. I went to their meetings in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I went to their meetings. And they got rid of the mutual benefits aspect because they were much smaller now. Their women's organization, they had a women's organization for Jewish women called the Emma Lazarus, Emma Lazarus Federation of Jewish Women's Clubs. Why that name? Who was Emma Lazarus? On the Statue of Liberty, there was a plaque. It says, give me your tithe, your poor yearning to be free. That was a poem written by Emma Lazarus. Emma Lazarus was the precursor of the communist Jewish woman. And that's why we took that name. Um, the newspaper, the magazine was called The Fraternalist. Um, and now it's resurrected today. That's important. In the Canada, Canada, they didn't have a McCarthy period like we did here. So they stayed in existence. The UJFO has never left Canada. And it's still they still have their own camps. And they had what we call schools on Saturday to teach Yiddish culture. Not religion, culture. And they call from the German word Schulz. The word Schulz is a German word for school. And so I grew up in the 50s knowing about the Schul movement, or we used to call it the Shula movement. Okay? I don't know if I this is really fascinating for me. It brings back memories. Does anybody have any questions so far?
3: I want to say, wow. I had no idea about the history I mean I knew I knew a tiny bit insofar as uh, I knew that that in the states we, we used to have a lot of like different language schools for like uh, different like minority communities, but
2: I't know a, a lot about the the, the kinds of activities that the, the old party did. we had a whole world around that we didn't have to send our children to a capitalist doctor. We didn't send our children to a capitalist dentist. We had our own through the IWO. We had our own doctors, our own dentists, they were all communist. We had our own camps that were communist. In the Ukrainian community, this should be important for everybody because of the Ukraine today. In the Ukrainian community, we had our own organization. It fought against the fascist Ukrainian groups in this country. Ours was called the Ukrainian American League. It was open to all people, but especially Ukrainian Americans. We had a newspaper that was called the Ukrainian American. That's what it was called. I'm gonna get, get a copy. I found one in one of my files to show you. It was put in English. Um, so we were able to fight against the fascists in the Italian community. A commun- Italian communists fought against Italian fascists, not just with uh, physical fights, but we had our own literature, our own books, and we were able to go into the Italian community and talk against Mussolini in Italy. We were able to do that. And the Ukrainians were able to go in and talk against this guy Stephen Bandera, who was who's honored in fascist Ukraine today um, because he worked with the Germans and he was anti-Soviet. So we were able to have all that. Um,
6: Two things I just want to quickly put down is that even way before the uh, the first communist movement, the logo, I mean the the basically the cry of the French Revolution was Liberté, Egalité, and Fraternité. Uh, that is the uh, the three words that were uh, that tried in the French Revolution. And of course, Fraternité uh, means the same thing, Fraternity. And hopefully, like I said, uh, Angelo uh, would remember that uh, the remnants of the Ukrainian organization was still around and uh, we used to go to meetings you know, they had the uh, remnants that was they were in the Communist Party, the Peace, uh, CPUSA, and we used to go to meetings on the uh, East Fourth Street in the uh, Greenwich Village. We went there a number of times, and that uh, they had the building, a whole building on the East Fourth Street, and uh, they used to hold meetings. And Angelo and I used to uh, used to go there.
0: When you look up Jewish people's fraternal organization online, it is very difficult to find any information. And I was wondering um, why that is. Yeah. So uh, to answer that, since Comrade General Secretary is away, um, my assumption on that is because of it being somewhat linked to the Communist Party USA and because of the effects of McCarthyism and whatnot. And the fact that it did uh, go out of existence uh at least in terms of name in the 50s and 60s. Um, I know also as well that one of the big groups that's called JPFO in the contemporary times is actually a gun rights organization. It's you know uh, Jewish people for the you know, firearm ownership or something like that. Um, so it can end up just going to there and giving you results for that rather than giving you results for the Jewish people's fraternal order. Uh, I hope that answers your question.
2: We had a very important publication in the German community in Yorkville, New York, which was the German community in New York, Manhattan. It was called the German American. It was a supportive of the German Democratic Republic um, and it was anti-fascist and anti-Hitler. And it was our publication, it was called the German American. So we even had that even among the German community. You can't understand the influence we had. We didn't go to people on the street as communists. We went as whatever we were. Remember that, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to do a quick little thing. There's
0: so much to be impressed by in that last section, and I'm not gonna go over all of it, but even down to things like cultural groups, uh, sports clubs, um, places where people can go and hang out and I don't know You're what, your areas if you have a lot of places where you know common people you know working class people can just hang out and have access to activities and services that's a big problem in some areas that is just lacking um, it's amazing to see what we had and also something we need to reflect on when we're thinking about building this party up Obviously, we're a long way away from this type of organization, but this is the kind of thing that eventually we're going to have to figure out how to do in each of our
2: areas. Thank you. Yeah, we got to build it up brick by brick, and we got to start now. We had finally done it in the Jewish community with re-bringing back the Jewish people's fraternal order. We tried to do it in the Spanish-speaking area with PCPAP, and we haven't been successful yet. It's still very rusty, but those are the only two. We need to do it in the Italian-American community. We really need an Italian-American communist organization that deals with spaghetti and meatballs, uh, Italian communist style. When I was active in the old party, I went to the area near NYU, and I gave out an editorial from our party paper at the time called The Daily World, and it was about elections in Italy, of how the communists in Italy came to power in the, in the city of, um, of um, okay, I don't remember now, but one of the Italian cities. And I explained how if the Italians could do it, we can elect Gus Hall. And I was going around with uh, petitions for Gus Hall to be president. So, yes, we need to do that. I continue to do that on my own. We need to do that collectively, not individually.
0: It strikes me the difference between this kind of mutual benefit society and the anarchistic mutual aid that we see nowadays. Uh, the anarchist mutual aid falls short because it it doesn't have the same kind of uh, collective nature to it as the IWO did. The IWO was connected to an established organization that had members that could go ahead and go into it and go to all these houses and give people that kind of coverage versus, you know, anarchist mutual aid, from what I've tended to see, seems to be more, you know, small, localized on the street, feeding the homeless, helping people with little things. But when it comes to actually trying to make sure that people have life insurance or health care coverage, it doesn't go that far. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the sort of old... Uh, mutual aid uh, communist style that we had was a lot better
2: Uh, i'd like to add to that i call it the peanut butter and jelly sandwich solution they make peanut butter and jelly sandwich one or two anarchists and they go and they feel oh we did something you've done nothing you've done what the catholic worker movement has done for 80 years before you and that is soup kitchens It was done way before the modern anarchists and it was done more effectively. We had a collective, we had a soup kitchen that gave soup uh, to the um, uh, unemployed, that gave soup to the people that were homeless. We had that. That does not bring across revolutionary understanding. We had a woman in our party who was very interested in that. So she left our party in 1940s, I believe it was. Her name was Dorothy Day. You must have heard the name. She led a movement called the Catholic Worker Movement where she did exactly that, soup kitchens. Um, And that's what she was comfortable with. So she left our movement, which was much more larger and, and saying that capitalism has to be changed and get rid of in order to get a society that we can eat food. So thank you.
7: Um, yeah, I was just kind of wondering, because I think in 1954, we were talking about that was whenever um, the assets were seized and there was really a big attack on the institutions of uh, that organization. And I was just wondering, I mean, obviously, McCarthyism was widespread and everything, but was it easier after Stalin died in 1953 to break apart those institutions? Um Did that have an effect on the overall strength of the communist movement internationally?
2: Thank you. I'd like to answer you, comrade. The we were weak. Why were we weak? Because somebody brought the seeds of division within our movement. Any group or individual who divides our movement is our enemy. I don't care if they, you know, Lenin says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Lenin says those words. So it doesn't matter why they do it. The fact is where they do it. And right now we're going through that. There are groups in the communist movement who have destroyed our unity over the issue of the Ukraine and have taken the same objective line as the U.S. State Department, that the problem in the Ukraine is Putin, not fascism, not fascism. Putin and Russia is blamed. And there are groups that have parroted that within our communist movement, like the Communist Party of Greece and the Communist Party of Mexico. They have carried that parroting, that lie. So they have to be held responsible for the division of our movement. Whenever we're divided, we're weak. And in 56, Khrushchev, for good reasons that he thought he had, gave a speech attacking Comrade Stalin the same words he used that the State Department used at the same time. So we were already weak. By 56, 57, we were weak internationally. Remember, uh, the Jewish community that we had built, the, the foothold of the Jewish community was destroyed by one guy who was saying the same words as our enemy was saying. Remember, we tend to respect our leader. If our leader then says the same lie that our enemy says, think about this, then we say, it must be true. It must be true, even our leader saying this. And that was the role of Khrushchev in 56 with the attacks on Stalin. Thank you.
6: Yeah, thank
5: you. I'm really enjoying the class. I really really love hearing um, our movement's history from Comrade Angelo. So really great to be here. Um, My question is, if we can eventually rebuild the strength we had and like all these institutions, all these connections, like what's to stop like the government from just destroying them again? Thank you.
2: The answer is nothing is going to stop them. Nothing is going to stop them. Their aim is to destroy us. Not just our message, but to destroy our bodies. That's the aim of the bourgeois government, to eliminate the communist alternative in society that's their job so nothing is going to stop them the point is are we going to be strong enough and it's going to be difficult you've seen it now in our own party um we're very small and yet people came to us and they wind up saying uh i never forgot one guy he said well my father told me i'm going to lose my job as a college professor if that is so important to you comrade with the quotes comrade if that is so important to you you should have never been in our party this is not a a a field of roses this is a field of thorns if you look at the life that people gave like john reed on the west coast there were thousands tens of thousands of john reeds remember in greece in 67 the fascist hood took over the government and they opened up the island. Is an island in Greece. They opened it up as a communist uh, prison where people died. A lot of communists died. So if that's what's bothering you, then I suggest you get out now. 90 seconds. You don't belong here. I don't know where you belong, that kind of individual. But they don't belong here.
0: So this will be on the destruction of the international workers' order.
2: Okay, the repression, government repression. From 1944, notice the years, 1944 to 50, what happened in 1945? The concentration camps were open. Now we all knew what fascism was. So that's important. In 1944, the House on american Activities Committee, even the name, who's to decide who's an American? The House on american Activities Committee began to publish a call Uh, against the IWO, and they called it a communist affiliated organization. They went further. They called it a communist front, F-R-O-N-T. We should take that word and understand what it meant. Lenin called it a transmission belt. The capitalist boss and their lackeys um, call it a front organization, a communist front. So this was declared communists, and that meant to say, "Uh uh-oh, stay away from that group, stay away from that person. The special committee, number two, said that the IWO was a huge, huge patronage machine furnishing positions for a host of communist functionaries who serve as the party's controlling commissars within the organization. Let me tell you how true that is. When people want to get our party, Do they attack our party or do they attack the leaders of our party? Think about that. Every attack against a communist party goes after the head. Why? Because the idea is that if you cut the head off the snake, the snake will die. That is the theory. And that's why every attack against the leadership of a communist party has to be viewed in that way. Where is that that criticism coming from? Does it mean that leaders cannot be criticized? No, does not mean that. But if everything you do is done from that perspective, then then you're nothing. Those people who attacked us recently formed their own group of 10 people. Well, once their enemy was gone, what brought them together? Their hatred of the leadership of the party of communists. Once that was gone because they were out of the party, now they didn't have anything to hold them together. So what happens to them? They fall apart. So leadership is important in all aspects. We're not anarchists. The special, uh, let's see, in 47, which is the year of Truman, that was the beginning of the Cold War, that in Europe and in the world, Um, the river term, an iron curtain has descended upon Europe. That came from Truman and and um, Churchill. That's where it came from. The U.S. Attorney General placed the IWO on a list of subversive organizations. They could not outlaw them. They only could put them on a list, telling the American people, stay away from this group. The New York State Insurance Company Department moved to get rid of the IWO in 1950. The beginning of the, the heyday of McCarthy period, on charges that it's lost care service reserves would be surrendered to the Soviet Union in the event of war. Well, that is not entirely, that is correct what they gave. But the real reason is we could not pay our income tax. Remember the daily worker could not pay their income tax. The Jefferson School for Social Research, in the Sixth Avenue, New York, could not pay their income tax. And that's why the government and that's why they collapsed. Okay, anything else? Next. Disbanding. In 1951, New York State took legal action against the idea on grounds that it was being too close to the Communist Party. Well, they could take legal action, they couldn't enforce it because there were no anti-communist laws that say that the Communist Party is outlawed. We don't have that. We didn't get to that level yet, as they did in Germany, as they did in the Ukraine, by the way, recently. They outlawed the Communist Party, another fascist formation, the Ukraine. This case dragged out for four years against a backdrop of McCarthyism in the United States. Even during these tough times for the IWO, the IWO was still providing necessary services and was still thousands of members strong. In 1954, they finally came to an end when it was disbanded by the Order of the State of New York. Now, they could have stayed together. Someone mentioned this before. They did not have the will to do that anymore. They were battered. They were tired, the leaders of the party. Half of them were in prison. Remember, there were 11 members of the leadership of the party, including uh, heads of the IWO, were sent to prison, because not because of being members of IWO, but because they were leaders of the party. So they were tired and exhausted. There was no will. I'll give you a personal personal example. I, went, I became teaching in 1970 in New York City. We had a group of law called the Feinberg Law, which said that no members of the Communist Party can be hired by New York City to teach in the school system. That was declared unconstitutional in the 60s, the middle to late 60s. So it didn't affect me. I was able to come in and I was an active communist all my years in the public school system. So much so that my principal saw me putting in union literature in the teachers mailboxes and said to me publicly, what everybody could hear, are you giving out communist literature? She told me that, she didn't say that to anybody else. Because she knew I was a communist, because I was outed by the New York Post in their editorial as being a, an active member of the communist movement, communist party to be specific. Um, so we were disbanded for legal reasons of not paying taxes, and that's why the government took us. There were other reasons behind those legal reasons, and that really was uh, anti communism. We are doing the last. This new upcoming party is doing the last, setting up the American Student Union, ASU, which every young person who's a student, either undergraduate or graduate, should be a member of. The ASU was was our formation, our mass organization that was set up. We're setting up the United Jewish People's Order. We're resetting, up. We already set up REIT. Women for Racial Economic Equality. Re. where do you think that came from? That came from being the American affiliate of a group called the Women's International Democratic Federation that was set up in 1945 after the war with fascism by the Soviet Union and the Eastern European socialist countries set that women's organization up. We are doing that. So this, 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 this thing about legacy is not finished. So now I'll read about it. Look at the logo, look at the logo on the right. That's the original logo, what does it show? It shows workers breaking chains. That's what it shows, workers organizing, hammer uh, and other things. The IWO continued the legacy of the original language federations which was started by the Socialist Party years before, and they furthered the solidarity between working people of different ethnic groups and getting them together in one organization. The removal of the services provided by the IWO, that's a famous, you should keep that in in, in reverence, International Workers' Order. It highlighted the necessity for better insurance coverage in this country for the working class and for African-Americans, which have been denied that, especially ethnic communities. Number next one, Camp Kinderland is a legacy, originally run by the IWO. It served McCarthy, survived McCarthyism and still operates today as a Jewish summer camp today. I suggest you get in contact with them and give, they're on a fund drive right now and give them some money. I wanna mention another group, Arrow Park. Arrow Park was started by Russian and Ukrainian, interesting lump, they worked together, Russian and Ukrainian members of the Communist Party. They set up Arrow Park, remember that. That's another thing that we should get involved with. I deliberately in 1970 took out a share And I worked my way in, and now I'm on the board of directors of Arrow Park. But it started with me buying a share for a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars in 1970. The last point, it has been suggested that the idea of mutual aid behind the IWO could be applied to a gig economy. Workers since they have no employer provided benefits. That's an idea I never even thought of and it's interesting I'm reading it here. What's next? Um, Since uh, Angelo mentioned
8: the attack by Khrushchev on Stalin, um, this question really revolves around that. And I was reading, it's a piece called uh, Consolidation and Development of Ideological Unity Among Marxist-Leninist Parties and it's by Ho Chi Minh and um, in it he sort of discusses the uh, the 1956 revolution of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and its uh, criticism of the cult of personality and um, I think you know we all know the cult of personality was of course about Stalin and um he sort of commends them on that action. And it sort of got me doing some other research on um, how Stalin viewed the cult of personality around him and how he was, uh, he sort of criticized the concept as well. So, my question is sort of a you know, as we look back on this uh, 90 seconds Khrushchev discussion of Stalin and how they handled that aftermath period how do, is it more propagandized now where we're like, you know, the propaganda now is that Khrushchev was brutal of Stalin and that we sort of have this misconception or is it, is it appropriate to say, you know, we can like the actions of someone while criticizing. Two minutes. A personality cult around them.
2: I'd like to answer that quickly, very quickly. That was a, a sheepskin, the real reason that Khrushchev did that had nothing to do with that. Remember that it was Khrushchev himself who kept pushing Stalin. Oh, Comrade Stalin is this, Comrade Stalin did this. When he was under Stalin, he was the best brown nose, if you know what that word means. Uh, they use it big time in my time. I don't know if they use it anymore. Uh, uh, a person who's always uh, um, praising the the guy that's a, Above them, the person above them. Khrushchev uh, was the one who did that. Stalin, I think it was three or four times, told the Central Committee, or the PB, I think it was the PB, that he was going to step down. And each time, the PB forced him not to. Each time. So it was not Stalin who was pushing the cult of personality. It was the people around him. All the people around him. I don't know if I answered your question, Comrade. I know uh, Camp Kinderland was under the umbrella of uh, JPFO at the time, but what did they did they have any actions that they took to try and uh, recruit into the YCL at the time? I would assume they 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 did. I would assume it, but remember the word assumption starts with A S S. We're the only ones. Unfortunately, it's unfortunately, that still popularized the song, The International. It is our song. It was born in blood during the Paris Commune. Um, We need to popularize that song. So we begin every school with that. And we end every school with that class, with that. So that tells you something. I got to tell everybody this one story I had with PSL. We were at a meeting two years ago. Party for had, Socialism and Liberation. Yeah, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Thank you, Cameron. I'll never forget what the head of that group told us. He was at a Brian meeting Becker. Brian Becker, the Becker brothers, and Gloria La Riva is his wife. Um and their son, they have a son, but he was at a meeting on two years ago on the anniversary of the Bolshevik um uprising in 1917 and we proposed to sing the international and he said we don't deal with the international and everybody said why he said young people it happened after they were born it's too hard for them to recite they butcher it that was the reason he gave which is a lame reason for not continuing the 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 history of the international and the words that are in that that song But when we had the event of 200 people in New York, him and his son walked out when we sang the International. That stayed in my mind ever since then. I personally have a real distaste in my mind, in my mouth of these people. But getting back to why it's important, we have to carry on the struggle that came before us. Our job is to pick up the red flag that has been on the ground Since 1991, the red flag was thrown on the ground. It's us who have to pick it up and carry it to the next generation. That's all we need to do, carry it to the next generation. And that means our history. Our history has to be retaught and reminded and some of it has to be reborn and relived. Because if we don't do it, the capitalist corporations will not do it. The ultra left, will not do it and the reformist revisionist in the movement will not do it so either the ultra left or the right wing in our movement are not going to do it the capital is not going to do it we have to do it so that's what the school is all about and that's why tonight's class was that important it really was that important and my job i'm 75 i'm going to be 76 i'm at the end As I say to everybody, I'm climbing down the mountain. I'm not going up no mountain. I'm climbing down. Um, My job is to get this information out of our history so that each one of you could then take that seed in your mind and spread it around. So tonight's class was very, very important to me. Plus the the fact that an old friend heard his voice and made contact. I will call that person separately. So it was a very good class tonight for me, thank you. Take care comrades.